Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along You're about to have one of the most incredible rides of your radio listening history as we head to Olympia, Washington to speak to David Alpert. David has done amazing things, been a support and inspiration to amazing people, and shares it all with a clarity and power seldom experienced. What specifically do he and his co-workers do? They bring friendly water to the world, especially war-torn, destitute, disheartened, impossible places. This is the stuff of miracles. We'll talk a little about the technologies and such, but much more. We'll talk about a revolution of spirit in empowering people dealing with war, rape, grinding poverty, and more. David Alpert is board chairman of Friendly Waters for the World, and he joins us via Skype from Olympia, Washington. David, I'm excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, glad to be here, Mark. We got in touch after I did the interview with Helen Tanyinga. You know her, too. How did you connect with her? I mean, is, I guess doing friendly water all over Africa, you probably have many opportunities. Well, actually, that was not the first way we connected. By the way, I'm going to see her in about 10 days. I'm going to be there working with her. I had a friend who we friendly water also works with, but this was not friendly water work who has been helping try to end child sacrifice in eastern Uganda. Believe it or not, that's a thing. And about three children a week are sacrificed between the months of May and November. There's a long and strange religious background to it. And this friend of mine, he's a living saint. His name is Gabula Milton Andrew, has been fighting child sacrifice there for almost his entire life. He contacted me about two and a half years ago, three years ago, noting that one of the girls in his orphanage, he has an orphanage for kids with HIV, was kidnapped from the orphanage. It was a Monday and that she was likely to be sacrificed. And as it turns out, girls are sacrificed on Friday nights. Boys are sacrificed on Saturday night. So we were brainstorming together. What can we possibly do in this situation? And we came up with the idea of advertising on all the local radio stations, TV and newspapers that she had HIV because she her name was Joan, by the way. She was eight years old because she had HIV. She was considered impure and they wouldn't sacrifice her. So we put the plan into action and it worked. Not exactly the way we hoped it did. The, the, the sacrificers did indeed decide not to sacrifice her and sold her to a Muslim cleric 200 miles away who was going to sell her into the sex trade in Kenya. He tried to get across the border, twice failed. On the third time, he put her in a burqa, taped her mouth, arms, legs, stuck her in the trunk and tried to get over again. The police stopped the car and when they opened the trunk, they found her and they immediately knew it was she because her picture was on the front page of the newspaper. Now, 
it wasn't so easy as that. And that's where Helen's going to come in. She had been multiply raped, beaten. We flew her to a hospital in Kampala. They really couldn't treat her. And so we airlifted her to Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi, Kenya, the best hospital in Kenya. I'm not going to go into the extent of her injuries. But after recuperating for about seven weeks, the question is what to do with her now. We couldn't bring her back to the orphanage because all the kids were already traumatized. And so Helen Tanyinga, who runs the Rape Hurts Foundation and an orphanage for kids who have been raped, agreed to take her in. And that's how I had my first real contact with Helen. Wow. This sounds uh, like amazing experiences you have. And you're going off to Uganda in just a short while. Do you often flit over across to Eastern Africa? Eastern Africa and India. Most of my work over the past 40 years has actually been in India. And because I'm home mining the store, I do it less than I would like to. But we always have teams going over. But this time, because of work I'll be doing with Helen, which I'll explain to you in a couple of minutes, I need to be there. So are you retired? (laughs) Well, that's a funny thing to say. I would do my eight hours a week working for the state of Washington in public health. And then I'd come home and do six or seven hours of this. And so my wife finally said to me, one of the jobs has got to go. And I said, oh, thank you. And I quit my day job. And I took one day off. Uh, This was about five and a half years ago. Took one day off, walked around my town on a Wednesday, something I hadn't done in 22 years. I then went back to work for Friendly Water, eight to 10 hours a day, sometimes more. And after seven weeks, my wife grabs me and says, we're going out of town to get away from your retirement. (laughs) I needed a vacation from my retirement. That's sort of the way it's been. So I'm retired, retired. We put new tires on and I'm good to go. (laughs) Well, what was your day work again? I worked in public health. First, I worked as a senior planner for the State Board of Health. And then I worked on the public health side of alcohol and drug treatment. So did this in some way, this public health, did this lead to your connection with Friendly Water? Because, you know, in the U.S., we don't worry about water in the same way that a lot of people in the villages in Africa or in India or wherever. We don't worry about our water very frequently. Occasionally, there's problems, right? More than you'd like to know. (laughs) Well, was it something that you dealt with professionally before you got involved in Friendly Water? Yes, but there was no direct connection, although I always tell people that everything I had done before in my life led up to this. So what was the background? How did you get there? (laughs) So how we got there, I've been working on and off in India for 40 years on land reform work with this amazing group of land reform organizers. And we'd gotten land for 17,000 families who'd been landless for 700 years. And of course, we knew that the water was making them sick. And the water in India now is worse than it was even 40 years ago much worse than it was 40 years ago. But I wasn't working on water issues. I was working on land reform. What happened is my co-founder, this was in 2006, was a member of Olympic View Friends Church. Out here on the West Coast, we have two kinds of Quakers. We have um, liberal progressive ones. That's where you usually find me hanging out. And we have socially conservative evangelical friends who nonetheless have a very strong peace and missionary vision. Well, my co-founder, Del Livingston, had learned the techniques of biosand water filters in Mexico. That's a long and funny story. But at any rate, he had had an invitation from Quakers in Kenya, where the water's western Kenya, where the water's terrible and making people sick, to try out what he'd learned. But Del is a terrible fundraiser. He needed only $2,700. And he went to his little church and he could only raise $1,200. 
Lucky for him, there was a former member of his church who'd quit his church and joined our friends meeting, who told him, you've got to go meet David Albert. He knows how to raise money. That happens to be true. And it's also true that whether I'm good at it or not, I actually like raising money because I get to move human energy where I think it should go. So Dell comes down to see me, an elderly Quaker. Of course, now we're all elderly. He came down to see me. And honestly, I don't remember a single word of what he said. I didn't understand a word about biosand water filters at the time. But the feeling tone I got was, David, I'm going to save the world, but I need $1,500. (laughs) Who knew it would be so easy? (laughs) Right. So when an elderly Quaker comes to see you and that's the message you pick up from him, you really only have two choices. You find him a nice place and a comfortable mental institution. Or you raise him, it's $1,500. Well, the $1,500 is easier than finding a place in a mental institution. (laughs) And less expensive. And less expensive. So I found him $1,500, and he went, and it worked. And we did more and more and more stuff together. I did learn what biosand water filters were intensely. And he kept on saying, when are we going to found an organization? And I kept on saying, Dell, it's not time yet. We'll know when it's time. Well, in October 2009, He came to me and said, David, I've got great news. What's the great news? The Association of Evangelical Quaker Churches has a mission fund that they put together at Thanksgiving. And this year they decided to give all the money to me. I said, great. And then he said to me, where should we do it? And I blurted right out of my mouth. I mean, just blurted it out. I said, Burundi. I've never been to Burundi. He said, why Burundi? I said, because it's the second poorest country in Africa. It's actually the poorest now. The people have been through hell. And we have friends there. That's another long story. But to make matters short, we decided on Burundi. And I said, Dell, how much money are they going to raise? And he says, oh, about $5,000. And I said, Dell, that's not going to be enough. But I'll raise another 5000 and somehow we'll figure out how to make it work. Well, the appeal went out and $32,000 came in. Whoa. So I said, Dell, maybe that's the signal. And so I called a meeting in my living room on January 1st, 2010 at 1 p.m., The time and date were very purposeful. I didn't want anyone who was hungover from the night before. And I didn't want anyone who thought that football was more important than clean water. And I figured five or six people would show up and 22 people were there. And that's how we got launched. That clearly it was a time, the time was right, that way it opened, as we Quakers say. Mm -hmm. And so what did you launch? What did you do there in Burundi? Well, we actually worked with a combined group of former child soldiers working with widows, many of whom would have been killed by the very groups that these child soldiers came from. We trained them together. And so we began a little cooperative of child soldiers and widows from the genocide in Burundi working together to ensure clean water in their communities. And it was a fantastic success. Talk about your peace conversion. You take someone who would have been a soldier. And I've met folks uh, in Rwanda. I've met someone, he's one of the friendly folk dancers. He was a child soldier in the whole Rwandan genocide time. So clearly it's a very different time, but talk about a peace worker for the world. The transformations are possible in those cases. Well, the time the time is not very different right now, unfortunately. Just last week, we trained a group of in Congo, just across from Rwanda, three miles away from the Rwanda border. We trained 25 former Congolese child soldiers who have been attending this drop-in center put together by this extraordinary person who has put together kind of a music, art, dance, theater drop-in center for former child soldiers. 
And besides them building biosand water filters, which will get them far more integrated into their communities than they ever could have been otherwise, they're creating drummers for clean water. Wow. So this is very, very current, unfortunately. Are you talking about the area around Goma? Yes, in Goma. Right, in Goma itself. Back in 2014, I was in the Congo. I Actually, it was my first experience in Burundi because we went in through Bushimbura, and we went into the Congo right into the area. We went in South Kivu area. So that's where I was hanging out for a few weeks. And I've been to Rwanda as well back in 2008. So I have some sense of what it's like on the ground. Can you provide the history? The two provinces, the northern and southern Kivu, it's a horrendous area. Sure. So, so let me start with my 90-second history of the Congo. I, I do this all the time because most people know nothing about it. So Congo, is the Democratic Republic of Congo is a huge place. It's as big as the entire United States east of the Mississippi River. And by all rights, it should be one of the richest countries in the world. It's got titanium and gold and diamonds and manganese and copper and aluminum and cobalt and coltan, which we're going to come back to in a minute. Tremendous natural resources. But from 1525 to 1880, their leading export was slaves. 355 years of slavery with slaves exported all over the world. Now, these slaves, of course, were the healthy ones. More men than women, but always healthy, leaving behind a population of the elderly, the sick, pregnant women, and sometimes women with young children. This doesn't do much for your gene pools. 355 years of slavery. When the slave trade stopped in 1880, in 1885, King Leopold, having gotten uh, the idea that there was money to be made in rubber tires, as well as in gold, decided he was going to make the Congo his own personal fiefdom. And for the next 23 years, he enslaved the entire local population locally, mostly to export rubber. The population of the Congo went down from 20 million to under 10 million. Congo is radically underpopulated. I know people are concerned about overpopulation. Congo is radically underpopulated. For 23 years, that happened. Then the Belgians took over, didn't treat the people much better. In 1960, Congo received, after a struggle, received its independence, elected their first president, Patrice Lumumba, and within six months, the CIA had assassinated him, followed by 36 years of brutal dictatorship. And in 1996, the new sets of wars in the Kivus broke out. Since 1996, it's the largest war in the world. If you combine the wars in Iraq, Yemen, Syria, you combine them all, they're not as big as the war in the Congo. Seven million people dead, maybe three to four million refugees, people desperate to escape. The war is over a mineral called coltan, which you, since you visited Congo, you know a bit about this. Coltan is a mineral. 80% of the world's current supply comes from North and South Kivu provinces in the Congo. And it's what makes your cell phone and your computer screen work. It's mined with child labor and slave labor often exported at night in armed helicopters to Rwanda. Rwanda is the world's leading exporter of coltan, but they don't produce a single ounce. And everyone wants their hands on this coltan. Everyone has an army. Your listeners probably don't know that the U.S. has been at war with England since 2002. The U.S. has a client army. The English, the Russians, the Israelis, the Rwandans have a big one. There are militias sponsored by Uganda, very, very vicious militias. They're indigenous militias. Rape is an institution of war there. So that's kind of the background. 
And to tell you how it continues now, about three months ago, our Congo representative in South Kivu, his name is Eliphaz Bashalwango Lukindumbonga, and I can spell it. <laughs> and Eliphaz was doing a training with a Quaker-related group in the town of Uvira, and Congolese National Army troops and United Nations troops were battling two militias who were invading the town. And the training was happening in town while bullets were flying all around them. Eliphaz asked, well, should we stop the training because it's unsafe? And the women said no. She says, whoever wins this conflict, we still need clean water. So the five days of training went on while there were hails of bullets going on all around town at the same time. It hasn't changed. And I was in Uvira back in 2014. So this doesn't sound like a safe place to go. Is it safer there or in Olympia, Washington, where you are, David? That's a great question, and I don't honestly know the answer. But I can tell you that all the people are traumatized. I mean, the, the degree of trauma that we deal with everywhere, and that's not just in Congo. The degree of trauma we deal with everywhere is just extraordinary. And the fact that people can rise out of this trauma and do absolutely monumentally great things is incredible to us. Folks, we're speaking with David Alpert, and he is in Olympia, Washington. He's the chairman of the board of an organization called Friendly Water for the World. Their website is friendlywater.net. Learn about them. As you can hear from all the adventures David's talking about, they are doing work on the ground in the places where it needs to be done. Let's get to some of the work of Friendly Water for the World. First of all, David, you're very clearly pro-peace and military solutions don't appeal to you, I guess is maybe one of the things I could say. But you're going into these dangerous areas and you've got people connected with Friendly Water who are living there. Is the organization in some way pro-peace or anti-war or is that kind of a, a sidebar? We see what we do as part and parcel to peace building. We've always seen it that way from our very inception, that one of the reasons there is no peace is because well, people are just not healthy. They can't think straight. They are so sick all the time from bad water that they literally can't think straight. There's no planning. They are traumatized. People lash out. And we've always seen our work in the larger context of peace building from our very inception. Talk about what the work of Friendly World. Well, let me actually let me read to you your mission statement, which I found on your website. And again, folks, that's friendlywater.net. Our mission is to expand global access to low cost, clean water technologies and information about health and sanitation through knowledge sharing, training, community building, peacemaking, and sustainability. We empower communities abroad to take care of their own clean water needs, even as we empower people here to make a real difference. And so there's the folks there in the grounds where, you know, they're on ground zero in terms of endangerment from not clean water, from maybe unfriendly water. Talk about what unfriendly water is, if you will. Sure. So more people have died from waterborne illnesses since 2000 and have died from all the wars combined. That number continues to increase. In most of rural Africa and in India, you find bacterial and amoebic dysentery, endemic typhoid, giardia, cryptosporidium, occasional cholera. Uh, the leading killer of children in Africa is rotavirus. Hepatitis A, which I had in India in 1981, and it was no fun. And these diseases are endemic. 
They kill children at an alarming rate. In rural areas, it's not uncommon to find three out of every 10 children die of waterborne illnesses before the age of five. Almost as bad as that, between the ages of one and five, children are afflicted with what is called parasitic stress. What this means is the body, instead of using the energy from food for brain development and bodily development, the energy is being used to fight off parasites. The result is permanent cognitive brain damage. And about in the areas we work, maybe as many as one third of children, they may get to school, but they're not going to learn anything. They're really, by the age of five, they have been damaged in such a way by waterborne illnesses that they're no longer able to learn. I'm always telling people who want to do schools in the third world, have you thought about water first? This is common. People with HIV, if they have access to antiretroviral drugs, but don't have access to clean water, the effectiveness of those drugs will be reduced as much as 80% because of opportunistic infections. If they have clean water but no drugs, they will live an average of five to eight years more. And if they have access to antiretroviral drugs and clean water, they can live indefinitely like here. Clean water is the key. There's several pieces that I want to talk to. But number one, when I was there in 2014 in the Congo, I had typhoid. I thought I was just coming down with Matasuma's revenge kind of thing. A wrong continent. <laughs> yeah, but there was a, a Congolese doctor who's Quaker there who was traveling with us, and he said, no, I think we better check you for some other things. And they found out I had typhoid. But of course, I had access easily to antibiotics and could take care of it right away. So I had a few days when I felt pretty crappy, but got better very quickly. And I had a doctor right there the same day to test me. Of course, they don't have that easy access everywhere or very few places, actually, I think, to the degree that I have. So what is the solution? I mean, fresh water, I mean, we could send them over Perrier, but I don't think that's the solution. Right. Well, obviously, things have to be multi-pronged and, and uh, sanitation and hygiene is important. Finding ways to gather water so that you have water at all is important. We teach people to build rainwater catchment systems that can be effective in that because the rainwater is certainly better than the surface water. But we can work with any surface water. The biosand filter will remove up to 99% of bacteria and 100% of viruses, worms, protozoa, amoeba from the water. They'll work for 30 years with virtually no maintenance, and people can make it themselves. Friendly Water for the World has three objectives. And the first objective is helping communities ensure their own safe drinking water supply. We don't do it for them. We're not a traditional charity, but we teach people so that they can do it for themselves. The second objective is helping communities become self-reliant. We help form small businesses and cooperatives in all water-related technology so that people can actually learn a, earn a living doing this while making their communities healthy. And our third objective has to do with something called effective altruism. We want to reflect back on Americans and teach Americans that very, very small amounts of money targeted well and intelligently can make huge differences in people's lives. It doesn't require a UNICEF or a World Vision or any of these large multinational non-governmental organizations to do it. You can do it with really small amounts of money if you apply it intelligently. So we've got all of those objectives of Friendly Water for the World. David Alpert is the one who's sharing those with us, and you are listening to Spirit in Action. org is where you'll find us on the net. 
where you'll find links to these organizations. Friendlywater.net is easy to find, but you have all of the links for the guests for the past 12 and a half years. You'll find comments, and we'd like you to add your comments to it because we need two-way communication. There's a donate button. Your donation makes this possible. Even more important, though, I'd say, is to make sure you support your independent media, and specifically your community radio station, the kind of folks who carry these programs throughout the United States. Start by supporting them, because by getting the word out, we can make the true difference. Again, we're talking with David Alpert. He's over in Olympia, Washington. Friendly Water for the World is the organization. You just heard the three different efforts they're going through. Let's start talking about this biosand filter, because a lot of people will not understand. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo, we had a kind of a filter thing that people could use. I actually never used it. I just boiled my water, right? And that got rid of the diseases or the things that were alive in it. Except for cryptosporidium, which would not be killed by boiling water. So that's what Peace Corps volunteers had at that time. What are you talking about with these biosand filters? So the biosand filter was invented by Dr. David Manns at the University of Calgary in 1993. He'd spent 14 years on it. He patented the technology and then gave the patent to the world. And it's an adaptation of a, of a slow sand filter, which was invented 4,000 years ago in Egypt. But he's turned it into a very simple household device. So let me explain it. Imagine a three-foot-high, one-foot-square planter box. That's the best way to think of it. Built into the wall of this is a tube, plastic. In North India, they seem to like copper, but plastic is fine built into this. Then you have at the bottom of the filter, two inches of half inch gravel, then two inches of quarter inch gravel, then 21 inches of sand from a high river bank or a quarry that we sift and sift and clean till we get it to a very exact size. Then two inches of dirty water on top of it. When I say dirty water, I mean I want water with cholera, typhoid, bacterial dysentery. I want dirtiest water you can find is what I need. A diffuser plate, so then we pour water in the top, the water's going to rain down on the sand rather than pour down and a top. So I open up the filter and I take 14 liters of water from a really dirty place. Cows could be doing their business there. People could be doing their business there. I really don't care. I, I have literally drunk water from the Ganges. Which is very dirty. Right. But it went through a biosand filter first. Pour it in the top, and when the new water hits the old water, the large bacteria, Salmonella, Shigella, E. coli, typhoid, cholera, the parasites, Cryptosporidium and Geronia, cannibalize each other. And you kill about 80% of the large disease-causing organisms right in the water. The bodies of the bacteria form a layer on top of the sand. We call it the Schmutzdeck layer. <laughs> it's black, film, slimy, but it's eating all the time. When the water goes through the first two inches of sand, that sand I described has sharp points and a slight electrostatic charge. And the bacteriophages that carry viruses, rotavirus, the leading killer of kids in Africa, hepatitis A, I said I had it in India in 1981, gloms onto the sand. And because there's no air, no light, no food, you kill 100% of your viruses in the first two inches of sand. Then the rest is an old Egyptian sand filter. No worms can get through, no protozoa, no amoeba. It's totally anaerobic, so the rest of the bacteria die off. The gravel keeps the sand out of the tube. The water comes out at slightly less than a half a liter per minute, up to 23 gallons of clean water a day, meeting all World Health Organization standards for clean water. Also takes out cadmium, iron, manganese, and lead. Can be modified to take out arsenic. 
The best part of it is it works for 30 years with virtually no maintenance. Cost, raw materials will cost between $12 and $26, depending on the country. Everyone will get paid for their labor. There'll be a follow-up for each one of the filters. We have an epidemiological questionnaire that everyone takes before and after. Basically, we tell people $50 will provide a family of 12 to 15 people or an orphanage of 70 kids clean water for the next 30 years. Wow. And you talked about five-day workshops. What kind of training do you do in those five days? So in the five days, we train people. The simple stuff, really the simplest stuff, is building the biosand water filter. And we teach people to mix the cement properly, to use our steel molds. You need one steel mold to make one filter every day for as long as the mold lasts, and that's virtually forever. We teach people how to demold. We teach them how to cut the tube correctly, how to install the filter, put in the right amounts of gravel, et cetera, et cetera, how to check up to make sure the filter is working correctly. Then we teach them marketing techniques, all right? how to market it, how to make it work in the community. We don't give anything away for free. We teach people how to teach community sanitation and hygiene. We teach people how to monitor the filters, making sure they're working well and how to make corrections if they're not. Our workshops here in the United States, of course, will talk about what are the difference between doing it here and doing it there, which are always very interesting. We will create networks of people within communities abroad so that they continue to work together. We'll supply them with a first supply to build the first 20 to 25 filters, at least two steel molds so they can be making filters, and a toolkit that provides them with everything they need to make a go of it. Your listeners should know we have one training a year in the United States in wonderfully beautiful Quaker Cove camp in Anacortes, Washington. It's five days long. This year it'll be August 18th to 22nd. And we have people coming from across the United States and around the world. The American training is mostly to train people to train people. The trainings we have abroad are mostly to set up workshops in communities. And that varies. For example, I'm doing a training in India, February 5th to 9th. That will be the train trainers to go out into their communities to train others. It really varies from place to place. So let's talk about the mechanics of getting this over to other countries. When I was looking on the FriendlyWater.net website, I was seeing all the representatives. You have a lot of board members, and you have representatives, I think, for each country. Talk about how you're organized that way. Well, you know, if we do our work right, they don't need us. They end up with more experience. They know where they're getting their materials. They know their communities. They speak the same languages. They've undergone the same traumas. And so where we can... Each country, we assign a country representative who is in charge, first of all, of looking through any proposals we get first. They have the final say, not us. Figuring out how to get the right trainers to the community, figuring out how to put the training in the community and to follow up with each one of those communities. And they are really the backbone of the organization. I like to describe us here as cheerleaders. We do have technical advisors here, and we have a medical officer based here and another medical officer based in Goma that can provide medical help or more advanced scientific work for us. But the country representatives are really the heart of the operation, and uh, we really can't do our work without. You sent me a couple of documents. I think it's information that you sent out perhaps to the press and and wider Mm -hmm. about two different cases of the work of Friendly Water and and how it transformed a local situation. One of them was with Helen Tanyinga and the Rape Hurts Foundation there in Uganda, and the other one took place in Goma. Could you just tell one of those stories or both of them? Sure. Actually, I'm going to tell a story near Goma because it relates to everything you've been talking about from peace building on. I'm going to talk about a community called Manova. 
So Manova is a town about 60 miles west of Goma. And in 2012, as part of the ongoing war in the Kivus, the United Nations forces and the Congolese National Army teamed up to fight several militia groups headed by the M23, which is mostly funded by Uganda, and the militia groups won. The Congolese National Army, it was a day in November, retreated 60 miles to the town of Manova, a town of about 35,000 people, where they proceeded to rape at least 141 women and pillage the entire town. The women, all their husbands left them. And this is particularly hard in a subsistence agriculture situation where usually a husband and wife will work a small shamba, a small piece of land for subsistence. Husbands now all gone. Many of the women contracted HIV. Many other women became pregnant. They had no resources and no place to go. Because of an international outcry in Europe, Americans don't seem to think about these things at all, a show trial was held in Goma, actually, for 39 low-ranking soldiers. They had been ordered to do this by their high-ranking members, but the low-ranking soldiers were put on trial. And with hard work, they managed to get the women to testify behind a curtain against these men. At the end of the trial, all 39 men were found innocent of rape. Now, let's be fair, they would have been found innocent in the United States as well. Because while everyone could agree that these 39 men were rapists and everyone could agree that these 141 women had been raped, no one could identify which man raped which woman. Well, the international community disappeared, leaving these women depressed, sick, with children who they had not planned on, without homes, with no way to grow food, just a mess. We were alerted to this situation by two people virtually at the same time. One a woman who runs a clothing store in Felton, California. Her name is Claire Campbell, and she had developed this great interest and love for the women of Congo. And she had heard about this story. By the way, a movie has been made about the Minova women called Seeds of Hope. And then we were alerted by a man, an extraordinary man. His name is Herman Chirahambali. Now, Herman had been a school principal in Minova 19 years ago. During the course of the war, the Congolese National Army, mind you, this is his own army, took over his school, destroyed every book, every desk, every chair. And at the end of three months, they burnt the school down. His mother was killed. He was married and his wife was about to have his first child, but it was going to be a difficult birth and they needed to get to a health clinic and they couldn't because of the war going on. Both wife and child died. They raped his sister who died of AIDS. Now, I have to tell you, Herman, 19 years later, is married with four children. He's about the happiest guy I know. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary, especially since what he's gone through. He works for a group called On the Ground Trading Company, a, a fair trade coffee company in Congo. But Herman told us about the women. And we decided to attempt with Herman and with our medical officer in Goma, attempt to train these women to build biosand water filters. And the women, of course, were quite skeptical and quite sick when our team first got there. there no Americans, by the way, it was all local teams. And they had a five and a half day training. And in the first 10 weeks, they sold 172 biosand water filters and netted $9,000. Which is immense riches in that area. Right. They now had enough money to put their kids back in school. They had all taken their children out of school, school costs in the Congo. They had enough money for medicine. They had enough money for food. Most of them were eating less than one meal a day. They had enough money for food. They had enough money for clothing. Meanwhile, the town was getting clean water. Well, they came back to us then and said, you know, this has been great. 
We need at least four more steel molds. Now, as part of Friendly Waters' work, we provide these steel molds on loan, long-term loan to groups. They cost us $650 a piece in the Congo. But we said, well, we'll loan them to you and use them as long as you need them. And they said, no, 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 we want to buy them. And they gave us $2,600 and bought four more molds. Now, surrounding the town of Manova were two refugee camps, one with 700 people, one with 450 people. And just as in 2015, there was a huge cholera epidemic. Now the Congo is gripped by an even larger cholera epidemic. And in the two refugee camps, they both had cholera. The women went in and built 12 biosand filters in the first camp of 750. Within three weeks, there wasn't a single case of cholera in the entire camp. The other camp, which had 450 people, they had 100 cases and 20 deaths. So they went in and brought 12 more filters, wiped out cholera there. And at that point, the local health administration, now mind you, there isn't much in the way of government to speak of these areas, but there is officially a health administration, decreed that every restaurant, cafe, and club in Minova had to have a biosand filter. Since then, the women have gone on to build more than 700 biosand filters, have netted more than $40,000, and provided clean water to their entire communities. And have now, you, you talked about trainers training others, they've trained two other groups of women who'd been raped in the war. And that website that David Alpert was talking about is friendlywater.net. The link is, of course, on northernspiritradio.org. I also have a link, by the way, to the Seeds of Hope movie. You can see that, and you can start educating yourself before you leave the United States to go visit. It's a risk to go visit these places. When I went to Rwanda back in 2008, which was 14 years after the genocide in Rwanda, I was nervous still, and the genocide really hasn't stopped stopped anywhere in these areas around both the Kivus. There's still so much killing going on. There was a respite back in the Congo in the area I was at for about nine months around when I visited. And I'm not saying I caused that, but I, I was fortunate. Oh, you can that... take credit. It's as good as anyone's. <laughs> I was fortunate to be there in a period where the killing wasn't happening. But just a few months after I left, someone with the group that we were in, their house was invaded. One of their arms was broken. The money was stolen. And someone in the hospital hospital, the grounds where we were staying, was killed, actually. And, you know, the murder happens for many reasons. Sometimes it's these international corporations. They're wanting to extract these invaluable resources, and so they enforce it themselves. We don't think of that. But there's also ultra-nationalists who are in the Congo. They're doing their killing, and there's any number of people for all different reasons who are killing there. It's, it's absolutely unthinkable from our point of view. There, you know, when you're talking about over 20 years between 1994 and 2014, and when I was there in the Kivus, there were some 6 million people killed. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's unthinkable by our standards. It's astounding. It's astounding. And the memories of the genocide stick around. I and mean, we, we, our largest programs are in Western Rwanda, just on the Goma border, where we have 54 different groups. And many of the people we train were orphans from the genocide. But it was sort of interesting. I'm working on a grant proposal with our coordinator there. And it took me a while to figure out what it was about. He was applying to a group called World Grannies, based out of the Netherlands, a group that works mostly in the Netherlands, but they have some international work for people working with elderly people anywhere else in the world. And it took me a while. First of all, he writes in French. My French is non-existent. My Kinyawanda is even worse. And so I have to get it into English and then I help him rewrite it. And I'm, as I'm reading, I'm reading it again and again. And I'm saying, oh, now I get it. There's this entire community of elderly people in Gisenyi. All of their relatives 
all of their children, all of their grandchildren have been killed. Now, in African societies, when you're aged, you're usually cared for by your children or by the community around you or by your grandchildren or by a niece. These people have no one. And not having anyone is basically a reminder, a daily reminder of the genocide. And so, you know, the proposal has clean water and helping them fix their homes and whatever. But the major part of the proposal really is just somebody to talk to. I mean, often the main work of peace building is just having somebody to talk to. And so I hope he gets the grant. I'm working hard with him on it. But it took a while to figure out why is he applying for a grant to world grannies? You know, and then then it hit me. And he had it like in three sentences, like it was always just, you know, you hardly have to think about this. But it was really the heart of the whole thing where there's this entire community of elderly people with no one to turn to. It's so unthinkable. And as you mentioned already, there is not a governmental safety net in the way that we think of it in the United States. It doesn't exist. And And some of the reason we have it here is because of what we take from them. Yes, we get our riches. We stand on the shoulders of other people and sometimes they get ground into the ground by it. All of these villages, states, areas we've been talking about have been in Africa, except for your mention of the Ganges. And yet you said most of your work or your travel was to India. So where's India in all this? So for 40 years, I have been working with a group called Land for Tillers Freedom. It's a group of Gandhian organizers who have been doing land reform work in Tamil Nadu, in the far south of India, successfully. And through creative nonviolent action and some creative financing, have managed to get this land for these 17,000 families. And we have a training center in a place called Gandhigram, not too far from Madurai, India. We've got nine buildings and training space and classroom space, and it's been used as a training center for nonviolent action since 1946. Friendly Water is there, and we're very much part of the activity there. And I go back at least once a year. I have an adopted daughter from India that came out of my work in India. And now Friendly Water's work in in water is expanding all over the country. Our major representative comes from an organization called Kude Kitbatgar. It means Servants of Peace. It was the organization of the Muslim Gandhi, of the Afghan Gandhi, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, also known as Badshah Khan, who fought nonviolently against the British, but in Afghanistan at the time. And the organization had died. Now, there's 7% of the population in India is Muslim, They have problems in the north, no problems that I know of in the south. But a new incarnation of Kude Kitmatkar, working on issues of social harmony, communal violence, work with the poor, has sprung up. A full-blown reincarnation of Gandhian thinking, but among a Muslim community. Although I have to tell you, only about 50% of the members are Muslim, and everyone is invited in. They are one of the leading organizations that promotes our work throughout India. And they see it, again, as part of working toward communal harmony because, again, everyone needs clean water. Muslims, Hindus, Christians, doesn't matter. You all need clean water. They work with the Dalit community, the so-called untouchables as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing many of their members between February 5th and February 9th when they come for training. So what is ahead for Friendly Water for the World? What's planned? There's a whole bunch of things we're working on. We're working on a training center in Uganda as well as the one we have in India. We have some large work that we're planning with the Ray Pertz Foundation. And Helen, we haven't, I haven't talked to you about that yet, which is extraordinary work. And the other thing we're working on right now, which is very exciting, in Tanzania, we're working with communities of people with albinism. 
Tanzania has the largest number of people with albinism in the world. And unfortunately, they are treated extremely poorly and often are killed for their body parts. The fisher community and the mining communities both believe that having a body part in your possession from one of the people with albinism makes it more likely that you'll discover gold or get a lot of fish in you when you go fishing. It's terrible. And so the government, for their own safety, had gathered people with albinism into these 12 large communities where essentially they have no land, no food, no way to make a living. They're safe and less likely to be killed, but conditions are awful. And we have just started a campaign. We just completed the first part of it with one community in northern Tanzania, a place called Shinyanga, with 180 people with albinism who are now going to become the water experts of their community. We've already trained them in biosand water filters, and they're working on selling filters now to the entire community, how to build rainwater catchment systems, they're using interlocking brick-making machines so they can make bricks to help repair their own homes, and also to use for the foundations for rainwater catchment, and micro-flush toilets, a very simple, innovative kind of composting toilet that makes uses of worms. So we're building an integrated program. The local government loves us. For the five-day training we just completed there, they rented a hotel for all the participants, provided police protection for the entire thing, threw a big party for us at the end, contributed $1,250 for two more steel molds, and have promised to do it again for three more groups. They've also given us land. We haven't done anything with it yet, but to eventually build a training center in northern Tanzania. But the moment we announced we were doing this, we must have gotten... 12 or 13 phone calls, letters, and emails from other groups of people with albinism begging us to come. It's an incredible amount of work. Were you going to say some more about Helen Tanyinga and the Ray Pertz Foundation? Yes, thank you. This will be great. I know you had Helen on your show. It was wonderful. So for your listeners who don't know Helen's story, Helen comes from a small village in southeastern Uganda. And at the age of 11, actually the day before her 11th birthday, She was walking for water, as is the normal thing, to a marsh where she was raped by a then a 28 year old man. The man still walks around her village freely. Her parents then thought, well, we just have to marry her off. That's the only thing we can do here. She resisted and she went on to become the first woman university graduate from her village, from her entire area, in fact, but never forgot that experience. And she set up something called the Rape Hurts Foundation that does various things, everything from advocacy work and legal work to providing a hostel for children who've been raped, often by their own parents, as it turns out, a drop-in center for rape and domestic violence victims, a little farm where they can work and recuperate. Amazing work that she's done with almost no money. I mean, the size of her budget had been laughable. And for years, I've been thinking, you know, She needs to find a regular source of income. She can't just keep begging abroad for the little pittances that Americans and others will throw at her. She's very good at begging, mind you, but there needed to be another solution. And, of course, the water there is terrible. And so in July, we trained 19 people at the Ray Pertz Foundation Center in biosand filter work. In the first week, she received an order for 50 filters for $125 a piece from the regional police. And they also paid her to train them on its use. She then received an order for 600 filters for $78 a piece from 10 prisons in the area. You can't imagine what water would be like in a prison in Uganda. And she's busy filling that order now. Then Plan International came along 
And they said, you know, we have all these foster families in uh, southern Uganda, but they don't have any source of clean water. And so she is building 1,289 biosand filters, one for every planned international family in southern Uganda. Wow. Wait, it gets better. It gets better. <laughs> About two months ago, she was invited, even before she started biosand work, to speak at a United Nations consultation on gender-based violence in London. And, of course, she didn't even have enough money to get to the airport, but they managed to figure that all out. And she got to London, and she got up to speak to 650 people, all women. And she simply told her story, to what you've heard. And at the end of this, she says there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And a woman from the United Nations Women's Trust came running up to her and basically said, we have money for you. We have money for you. <laughs> so being Helen, she asked, how much? And she said, oh, $150,000. But then Helen explained that she was working with Friendly Water for the World and had a way to help women heal while at the same time providing them with an ongoing income independent of their families. And the woman came back and says, well, how about a million over the next three years? Wow. So Helen and I, we don't have it yet. Helen and I worked together for about 10 days in December. Uh, that was my Christmas. 10 days in December, working on a proposal to train 12 communities with a minimum of 50 women who had been raped or sexually abused each and four new communities a year. First four in Uganda, but it may stretch beyond Uganda after the first year. We'll train them in biosand filters first. Then out of that group, we'll pick a smaller group and we will train them to build rainwater catchment systems so they don't have to walk off for water where they're being raped. We will then train them in interlocking brick making, the building of micro flush toilets. Many women are raped while going off to the bushes. We can prevent that. We will train a smaller team from them in simple pump repair and wellhead and springhead protection. And then finally, with our friends in Seattle, I bet you didn't ever hear of this before. There's a group called Plumbers Without Borders. <laughs> they really exist. Delightful people. We included in, for those groups that are close to cities or larger towns, we will train groups of women as women plumbers. And this will all take three years, and it will all be done in the context of the women healing over this period of time. So this is what we worked on. Uh, the budget has 358 budget lines. It was quite a bear to put together. Of course, I don't believe it'll happen till I see it, but they keep on telling us it's going to happen. Among the reasons I'm going to Uganda is to check in with Helen, both on her current building. She's getting orders faster than she can fill them. It's a nice problem, but we need to figure out how to way to step up her production. Then to figure out, well, if this piece of magic from the sky happened to fall on us, how will we jumpstart it? And luckily, we have a wonderful country representative in Uganda who's training something called the Friendly Water Corps. We're training 15 groups of 15 youth each in 15 different sub-districts in all these aspects of clean water and sanitation. And they will then be able to go out all over Uganda, actually all over East Africa, and train others in the work. And that, that's happening even as we speak. You know, David, my mind is completely blown away by all of these things you've been a part of and worked into and pushing into the future. It's really incredible work that you and all of the Friendly Water Corps, and again, people would make a mistake if they thought this was just people in the U.S. doing this. If they look at your website, 
they're going to see the reps from all the countries, people working all over. This is a true reaching around the world of hands meeting of people making the important change in the world. And it changes everything in the social fabric, the kind of work that you're doing. And I have the most amazing board. I mean, you can't you can hardly imagine how I looked up the most world's most amazing board. And I have an assistant, uh, our administration and operations director, who is a Muslim woman scientist from Morocco and one of the world's leading experts on the removal of arsenic from water with a biosand water filter. And she's amazing. We, we have such amazing people. People are so amazing that next May, my board has said, we're going to meet in Uganda. We're going to bring all the country representatives and a large part of the board. Said, so why are we beating here all the time? They're doing all the work. My dream, I don't know if we'll ever realize it, but technology is getting better. My dream is the actual, the entire board would be made up of people from abroad. And we would basically be there cheerleading and fundraising on. I mean, they, they know their local conditions and what they need better than we ever can. Well, I am grateful that you, David Alpert, had this vision along with your mentor, Del Livingston's help. You've got this started all these, what, almost 10 years ago. Again, the organization, folks, is Friendly Water for the World, friendlywater.net, links on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll have links to the Seeds of Hope video and a couple other relevant links also on our site. But mainly what I want to make sure, David, is, and I'll, I'll take your pledge on this, I want to make sure that this episode airs on KAOS there in Olympia, oh, great. or maybe on KVMR. They both at one time or another carried Spirit in Action. There's some 33 stations nationwide carrying our programs. They should be carried regular in Olympia, don't you think? I do think so. And I just mainly want to say thank you for the work, the inspiration. It sounds like for a retired person, you've got more energy than three working people. Well, I am retired. Got good tires. You can kick them, and I'm just doing fine. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Again, follow the links for David Alpert and Friendly Water for the World on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.